Well, as you take your seats, if you'll turn in your copy of God's Word to the Old Testament book of Ezra. If you're a guest with us, we are working our way through Ezra verse by verse. At Christ the King, we preach expositionally. That means that we take precept upon precept. We value all of God's Word and esteem it very highly. And so every part of God's Word is profitable for us. So we are taking Ezra, one chapter and one verse at a time. Today we will find ourselves in Ezra 2. And I am going to attempt to do something rather daunting. I intend to cover 70 verses of Scripture in under an hour. Your prayers are appreciated during this difficult time. A number of you have reached out to me this week with words of encouragement and also to offer condolences. And both have been deeply moving, I assure you. Beloved, you know that at Christ the King, we believe that every jot and tittle of this book comes from the mouth of the Ancient of Days. We are under no liberty to do anything but take His Word seriously. Whatever we get out of these 70 verses this morning, our mindset going in must be that these are, in fact, the very words of God, divinely inspired and profitable for our instruction, reproof, correction, and that even a list of names is somehow able to train us in righteousness. This chapter, just like every other chapter of God's Word, is able to equip men of God and make them competent for every good work. Normally, I will read the text over you before we begin preaching. I am going to continue that this morning. I'm going to read the entirety of Ezra chapter 2. I'll then pray and ask God's blessing on our time, and we'll begin taking a look at the text. So if you will look with me at Ezra chapter 2, if you're having trouble finding it, you flip open to the center of your Bible, you're likely to land in Proverbs or Psalms. You can flip just a few chapters or a few books prior to that. You'll have Job, then Esther, then Nehemiah, then you'll find Ezra. It's a rather small book comparatively to the rest of Scripture. That's there right before Psalms and Proverbs. Just keep flipping and you will likely find it. If you hit Chronicles, you've gone just a little too far. Ezra chapter 2. Now, these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Saraiah, Reeliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Baana, the number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Parosh, 2,172, the sons of Shephatiah, 372, the sons of Era, 775, the sons of Paath Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,812, the sons of Elam, 1,254, the sons of Zatu, 945, the sons of Zakai, 760, the sons of Bani, 642, the sons of Bebai, 623, the sons of Asgad, 1,222, the sons of Adonikam, 666, the sons of Bigvi, 2,056, the sons of Aden, 454, the sons of Ater, namely of Hezekiah, 98, the sons of Bezai, 323, the sons of Jorah, 112, the sons of Hashem, 223, the sons of Gibar, 95, the sons of Bethlehem, 123, the men of Netophah, 56, the men of Anathoth, 128, the sons of Asmaveth, 42, the sons of Kiriath Aram, Shephirath, Beeroth, 743, 
the sons of Ramah and Geba, 621. The men of Michmas, 122. The men of Bethel and Ai, 223. The sons of Nebo, 52. The sons of Magbish, 156. The sons of the other Elam, 1,254. The sons of Haram, 320. The sons of Lod, Hadid, and Ono, 725. The sons of Jericho, 345. The sons of Sina'a, 3,630. The priests, the sons of Judea, of the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Emmer, 1,052. The sons of Pasher, 1,247. The sons of Haram, 1,017. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua and Cadmiel, of the sons of Hodaviah, 74. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 128. The sons of the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Ater, the sons of Talmon, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hatata, the sons of Shobai, in all, 139. The temple servants or slaves, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hasufa, the sons of Tabaoth, the sons of Kiros, the sons of Siaha, the sons of Padon, the sons of Lebanon, the sons of Hagabah, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hagab, the sons of Shamlai, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Giddel, the sons of Gehar, the sons of Reiah, the sons of Reason, the sons of Nakoda, the sons of Gazam, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Paeseah, the sons of Bisai, the sons of Asna, the sons of Meunim, the sons of Nephissim, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakufa, the sons of Harher, the sons of Basluth, the sons of Mahida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tima, the sons of Nizaiah, and the sons of Hatipha. The sons of Solomon's servants, the son of Sotai, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Hasapharath, the sons of Peruda, the sons of Jaela, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Giddel, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Pokereth, Hazabaim, and the sons of Ami. All the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. The following were those who came up from Telmela, Telharsha, Cherub, Aden, Emmer, though they could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. The sons of Deleah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 652. Also of the sons of the priests, the sons of Habeah, the sons of Hakaz, and the sons of Barzillai, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there, and so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until there should be a priest to consult Urim and Thummim. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 200 male and female singers. Their horses were 736, their mules were 245, their camels were 435, and their donkeys were 6,720. Some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made free will offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priest's garments. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers and the gatekeepers and the temple servants lived in their towns and all the rest of Israel in their towns. 
And thus far is the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's ask God's blessing on our time this morning. Father, this seems like a lot of information and it's overwhelming. Lord, you know, we've spent over eight minutes just reading the text this morning. And we thank you for your word. Your law is sweet and it satisfies our souls. We love you for giving it to us. And we love you for sending your word in the flesh, Jesus Christ, who himself alone can save us from our sins and who alone is revealed as the only way to salvation from this precious word we each hold in our laps. So please open our minds this morning that this might be profitable and encourage us to be like Jesus and those that don't know him to repent and believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, beloved, is a kind of roadmap for the chapter this morning that we're going to look at. I've divided the text into three sections. First, we're going to look at some textual questions that are presented in this chapter and all throughout Ezra and Nehemiah, but I'd like to sum up all of those questions in this morning's message and deal with the idea of the transmission of the text of the Bible and the reliability of our Bibles and how we got those. We'll look principally at that topic in verses 1 and 2. Then in verses 3 through 67, we will deal with this long list of names and see that in what may seem like one of the dullest portions of your Bible. There is life and even the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lastly, in verses 68 through 70, we'll look a little bit more deeply at the topic of giving that we discussed last week and what is required for us in this great task of rebuilding Christendom. Well, I want to look first to some questions that arise in the first couple of verses. I'm not going to read all of the verses over you again this morning, but as we transition from chapter 1 to chapter 2, let's just give a brief reminder of our timeline. You remember that in chapter 1, Cyrus was stirred in his spirit by the Lord. Though he was politically motivated, the Lord was using it to allow the Jews to return to the promised land as he had promised through the prophet Jeremiah. He made an edict, that is Cyrus made an edict, and sent it throughout his empire. And the heads of fathers' houses, their families, and some priests and Levites stood up and responded to the call, preparing themselves and their families to leave and go back to Jerusalem. Cyrus and the people of his kingdom gave them a bunch of stuff to take away with them, including all of the temple artifacts taken by Nebuchadnezzar. And then, it's as if, all of the sudden, somebody stopped the whole lot of them and took roll call. Now, a quick read with our Western eyes may lead one to the conclusion that all of this from chapter 1 to chapter 2 took place rather quickly, maybe within the span of a few weeks. But let's think about this for just a minute. We're talking about the coordination of and mobilization of over 40,000 Israelites. In that time, no one sent a text message to anyone else. In that time, no one sent an email or even a next day by signature confirmation letter through the snail mail. No one made a wireless call. No one made one of those paleolithic corded landline calls. They couldn't reach their relatives quickly far away in the northern territories. There were no Facebook groups created. Return or burn. Nothing like that. Nobody pulled out their trailer and loaded up their F-250 with all their goods and furniture. Nobody got an Uber or a U-Haul or even had a dolly. Nobody had refrigeration or air conditioning or a flush toilet or a laundromat. When the people heard the edict, it would have been through the mouth of one of Cyrus's official carriers, the writers that went out to announce, or perhaps they even heard secondhand from that. And all that would have happened as they began to assemble would have taken a tremendous amount of time. Not days or weeks, but months. Perhaps even over a year. We know that Shesh Bajar, 
returned to Jerusalem in about 538 B.C., immediately after the decree. But Zerubbabel and this crew that returned likely returned sometime after that, but before 520 B.C., and it could have been in waves. They could have come back in several groups. Ezra 2 is a recording of that long list of returning exiles. It is essentially the same list of names and numbers that is recorded in Nehemiah chapter 7. If you flip over to Nehemiah chapter 7, you don't have to right now, but you can, you'll see almost an identical list of names and numbers recorded. Now, if you compare the two closely, some things don't seem to add up. For example, in Ezra chapter 2, 11 men in verse 2 are counted as these heads of fathers' households that will return leading the people back to Jerusalem. Whereas in Nehemiah chapter 7, you see in verse 7, a name is added, making it a total of 12. Now, I will tell you that different commentaries go different ways on why this is the case. There are a number of different reasons. And honestly, since we've planted Christ the King, and I've been studying to preach every Sunday morning, I have not had more reading responsibility to do than this week with all the different reasons why people think some of the numbers from Ezra chapter 2 and the numbers in Nehemiah 7 don't add up. Why are they different? What, what, what are some possibilities? Well, first of all, people could have died on the way. I mean, this isn't an overnight trip or even a weekend drive in an internal combustion engine-powered vehicle. This was a long journey that, like I said, could have taken months. Some could have died, or perhaps there could have been births on the way. This is likely the case. Or, as some of the names look a little different from Ezra to Nehemiah, maybe there's a spelling difference, or a person is called by a different name, there could be family names given in one list, whereas a personal name or a known name of that person would have been given in another list. But I want to look head-on this morning at a question that comes up frequently in the study of Scripture, particularly Old Testament studies. And in studying the Old Testament, particularly when you look at commentaries, if you have commentaries in your home from the Old Testament, I would caution you, beware. Liberal theology and scholarship is everywhere today in the study of Scripture, but particularly in the study of the Old Testament. People want to dissect it, tear it apart, say it's not trustworthy because if we can't trust Moses, we can't trust Jesus. You see where Satan's plan comes. Now, I mentioned that there are 11 names given in Ezra 2 and 12 given in Nehemiah 7. Again, I think that there is a good reason that could be given for this, but some commentators say that in Ezra, a name was left out by mistake. Now, I will also tell you that I'm a child of the 80s, so I am a contrarian in my DNA. I want to say to people like that, who says? Says who? How do you know somebody made a mistake? How do you know there were originally 12 names in Ezra instead of just 11? What evidence can you give that a mistake was made other than your mere supposition? Do you have some manuscripts that have 12 and so they don't actually line up and you're having trouble comparing the two. I believe there's good reasons to believe we have the text as we have it. But let's just say, for the sake of argument, we might encounter people like this in our evangelism efforts, that there is a disagreement in the ancient manuscripts that we have that help us in understanding what kind of Bible we have today. I've talked about the idea of textual variance before, this is the idea that there are irregularities in some of the ancient manuscripts. For example, a scribe made a mistake while sitting there copying for long hours throughout the day. One big question we as a church have to answer at the first is this. When Ezra was writing this book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, did he make a mistake? And everyone's shaking your heads. 
No, he did not. A resounding no. When God inspired the writing of the text in its original autographs, that divine inspiration was preserved perfectly from God to the pen of a finite man who recorded God's word for us, for our sakes. The word of God is perfect as it was written in its original autographs from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed. That means it is given by divine inspiration. And it is profitable for instruction, for conviction of sin, for correction of error and the restoration of obedience, for training in righteousness, that is, learning to live in conformity with God's will, both publicly and privately, behaving honorably with personal integrity and moral courage. This is what we believe about our Bible. We're not going to waver about this at all. Every word of this book proves true because it is the word of God. Here is a statement or an excerpt from a statement. This is called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. And it is a statement that summarizes our church's position and the elders' position in regards to the means of how God brought you your Bible today. First, we affirm that inspiration, strictly speaking, applies to the autographic text of Scripture, which, in the providence of God, can be ascertained from available manuscripts with great accuracy. We further affirm that copies and translations of Scripture are the Word of God to the extent that they faithfully represent the original. We deny that the essential element of the Christian faith is affected by the absence of the autographs. We further deny that this absence renders the assertion of biblical inerrancy invalid or irrelevant. Now, there are a number, number of people who would come at us and say, you say that the autographs, the original inspiration of the Scripture, is infallible, inerrant, and without error. Show me the autographs. Where are they? How do you know you have what the Bible originally says? You don't have the autographs. Bart Ehrman, an apostate and Bible critic, once said, what good is it to say that the autographs were inspired? We don't have the originals. We have only error-ridden copies. Now, it's interesting. Bart Ehrman makes a lot of money off of poking holes in the Bible or trying to. He's also, and you can look up YouTube videos of him saying this, to news anchors on liberal news programs. When they ask him, so Bart, you know Greek. You can read the Old Testament manuscripts. What does the Bible actually say? He's on record having said, well, it actually says what we have in the Bible. It says what's written here. He knows that God preserved the Word of God for us, so that everything that we need for life and godliness is contained in our Bibles, that we can become men and women of God equipped for every good work. Ehrman is what the Bible would call a fool. And here is why. If you can't answer some of the numbers questions in the Bible, so why are there 11 in Ezra 2 and 12 in Nehemiah 7? Has God failed to preserve his word for you? No, beloved, he has not. Not in the least. Let me give you an example. Let's say that sometime this coming week, at the same time, everyone in this church receives a text message from Joshua telling us that in the coming weeks, there's an imminent crisis financial crisis that's going to hit America. And he's encouraging everyone to have at least a little bit of reserve cash on hand because it could be months before you get access to your bank again. And let's say that within the hour of receiving that text message, Evan texts everybody and says the same thing. You've got two men who are in IT security, know a lot about that world. You can trust them. And they send you this text message. But you go to your wife and you say, sweetheart, you're never going to believe this. 
we, we can't believe these guys. Look, Joshua doesn't even know how to spell eminent. <laughs> now you laugh because that's ridiculous, but this is the way people treat the Bible. Well, that looks like a misspelling, so God didn't preserve his word. Poppycock. I just said poppycock in a sermon. It's ridiculous. It's ludicrous. We may not be able to answer all the numbers questions, but did God preserve his word for us? Yes, he did. He absolutely did. God has kept free of error, the Bible, in every area of doctrine and practice. So any perceived difficulties on our part do not keep us in any way from understanding the message of a given text. The First London Baptist Confession of Faith states, the rule of knowledge, faith, and obedience, that is the scriptures, concerning the worship of God in which is contained the whole duty of man, it is only the word of God contained in the Holy Scriptures, in which is plainly recorded whatsoever is needful for us to know, believe, and practice, which are the only rule of holiness and obedience for all the saints at all times, in all places, to be observed. Can anyone on earth today, or maybe within the last a thousand years, tell you why Ezra has only 11 names and Nehemiah has 12. No, they can't. Not definitively. But does that keep you from growing in Christ-likeness through the Word of God? No, it doesn't. You don't have to know all the answers, brother. But God's Word is going to guide us into all truth. Jesus promised us that. Now, I want to look at this long list of names. The leaders that head out from Susa in Babylon, the heads of the father's houses, we read about back in chapter 1, here's something that's really neat about names. Let's take Nehemiah's 12 names. Let's say that there are 12 names, 12 men that come out from Susa leading this people. You have 12 men, 12 patriarchs, leading the people of God out of captivity to the promised land. Where have you heard that story before? It's the Exodus. It's the Exodus. This is a reconstituting. It is God's intentional reconstituting of the people of Israel underneath 12 tribes, bringing them back to his place. He handpicked men and their families that would comprise a complete restoration of the people of Israel. And he loves you so much that he listed all of their names. It's not just a remnant. It's these guys and all their families. He had promised to preserve his people Israel. And he went above and beyond that, proving to us through this chapter that God keeps his promises to scientific levels. All the way down. He keeps his promises. Jeremiah chapter 30, verses 1 through 3. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. Now, I've mentioned some central themes in Ezra and Nehemiah, like the sovereignty of God, or repenting, returning, rebuilding. But one of them that I am going to hammer every single week, and I want it to encourage you to believe God, to pray boldly before the Lord. Beloved, God keeps His promises. If the kingdom of Jesus is to be built by the men of Jesus with the hammer of truth and the nails of the gospel, then every swing represents our faith in a God who keeps his promises. So what do we do with a long list of names? What's in a name? Well, here's some pretty interesting things about the folks in this long list of names from verses 3 to 67. Look at verse 3 going all the way down to verse 35. You have a list of ordinary Israelites, men and their families 
who were not tribal heads. These were people who would do the work of farming. Some might be builders. Some also might be warriors. Many other jobs, I'm sure, are encompassed here. Several of these list a place name rather than a family name. So in verse 28, you have the men of Bethel and Ai. Those are known places. So they listed a group of men from a place. They were known better by a place than a name. And this is a stylistic preference, nothing more. The interesting thing is, and it's, it's fascinating when you look into the details of these lists, what actually went on. This list follows a counterclockwise direction around Palestine. So it starts somewhere south of Judah or Jerusalem and goes all the way around the Judean territory and comes back around again, if you follow the ordering that's listed here. Now in verses 36 to 39, there are four households of the line of priests. Interesting note, the list of names and numbers in Ezra and Nehemiah for the priests were copied precisely. No questions about what the number was. They match perfectly. Also an interesting note, that when the numbers are added up, the priests comprise roughly 10% of the returning exiles. How about that? In verses 40 to 42, you have a handful of Levitical families. These are singers, gatekeepers, etc., who would assist the priests in their sacerdotal duties. It's a pretty small number compared to the priests. And we will see later in Ezra chapter 8 that at one point Ezra had no Levites, nobody from the family of Levi to come and help him, and he had to recruit. In verses 43 to 53... You have a number of temple servants given. Don't let your translation fool you. When I read this morning, I mentioned that the word is actually not servants, but slaves. And these were slaves to work in the temple area. Some people think that these were descendants of the Gibeonites, those rascals that tricked Joshua when Israel returned to the promised land. Though there are a couple of Egyptian names here and at least one name from the city of Lachish. In verses 55 through 58, there's a list of Solomon's servants. This is a pretty obscure group, and we honestly don't know much about them, but does our not knowing anything about them change the meaning of your Bible? No, it doesn't. Lastly, we have a list of people who couldn't trace their lineage. This is in verses 59 to 60. That would be common folk. And then in verses 61 to 63, that includes a list of of priests who could not trace their heritage. You may know that the genealogical records of the Jews were kept in the temple, and it's likely that some were damaged or destroyed during the siege under Nebuchadnezzar. And lastly, in verses 64 to 67, the totals are given. Okay, there's almost 70 verses in the span of five minutes. Now, I want to look at application from this long list that we see in Ezra chapter 2. What in this list can help us as Christians at Christ the King in Anderson County become more like Jesus? First, I want to talk to you about the value of a good family name. Proverbs 22.1 says, A good name is to be chosen over great wealth. <laughs> Beloved, we need to, here in Anderson County, if we are going to live local, live long, and have an impact in this community, think about the impact of a good household and family name. This may sound like pride talk and even seem irrelevant to the mission of building the kingdom of Jesus, but look how important it was for these returnees to have their families registered and in good standing. If they couldn't, they were excluded from the work. You know that if a person in our church persists in sin and refuses to repent after one and then two or three, and then he is addressed by the church, refuses to repent, his name is no longer considered good in our congregation, and he's put out of the church. It's that important. A good name is to be chosen over great wealth. Even amongst those who couldn't prove their lineage, 
were the sons of Barzillai, a man who had married into a family of daughters and taken the daughter's father's name. How important back then was a patriarch. By the way, Barzillai might sound like a strange kind of name. In Hebrew, it's got a pretty cool meaning. Man of iron or iron-hearted. Pretty stout. How much good can your good family name do for the kingdom of Jesus? Let me give you an illustration. Many of you re uh, will recognize the name Charlton Heston. You remember the powerful 1956 film, The Ten Commandments, or perhaps the 1959 film, Ben-Hur. Heston had a tremendous influence in the movie-making world back in those days. Later in his life, he became involved in politics and conservative action. He heard about a rap artist named Ice-T, who was making some waves with a single with the name Cop Killer. This was back in the 90s. Critical theory was alive and well back then. This was being promoted by Time Warner, at that time the biggest entertainment conglomerate in the world. Police officers were outraged by the album, but the song was a cash cow for Time Warner, and there was little hope that it would be taken out of the public eye. After all, Ice-T was a black man, so what could you say? Time Warner, at one point, held a stockholders conference in the Beverly Hills area, and Heston decided to go. He had several hundred shares of Time Warner stock at the time. And at one point, he asked for a chance to speak. They gave him the floor. He got up on stage, and he simply read the lyrics of Cop Killer over the entire assembly of people. Men, women, folks in their 50s, 60s, 70s, some in their 80s who had never listened to a rap song in their life. He read every vile, vulgar, disgusting word. He also read the lyrics from another Ice-T song describing the rapper sodomizing, at that time, the 12-year-old children of the vice president, President Gore. Yes, an actual song. You can imagine how cringy it was in that auditorium. But a few weeks later, Time Warner, having no choice because of public outrage, had to cancel Ice-T's contract. And nobody knows Ice-T anymore. A good name really is better than great wealth. Why does it matter that our names be good names? Because we cannot have wicked names while we call ourselves by the greatest name, the name of Jesus Christ. To that point, the value of a name goes even deeper than our cultural impact. Take the sons of Barzillai, for example. They were claiming to be of the priestly line. They wanted to serve as priests in the temple service. But they cannot prove that they were descended from Aaron, and so they were excluded from the congregation. What did they need? They needed a high priest. They needed a high priest who could come and prove that they belonged to the family of priests. In other words, they needed an intercessor. If you're here today, and you're in unbelief. You're still listening to the Christian conversation, but you're living in your sin with a heart of stone. Let me tell you, you are also outside of the congregation. You are not considered clean. You are not part of our work. You have no part in it, as the Bible will later say in Ezra and Nehemiah. Peter called the Christians a royal priesthood. But if you're not in Christ... You are not. If you have never repented, 
You are living in hatred to God, and there is no chance that you will be accepted into the great congregation of God's people. Like the sons of Barzillai, you need the intercessory work of a high priest. And beloved, Jesus is the great high priest. Jesus, who never sinned, being himself very God, stepped into the body of a man through a virgin, born into this world of sin, and lived a perfect life, having never sinned. And then himself, choosing freely to be the substitute for our sins, bore the sin of his people on the cross, so that if any man cry out, what? The name of Jesus. What does Peter say in Acts chapter 4? This Jesus is the stone that it was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by which men must be saved. What's in a name? The keys to eternity. The family lineage of the everlasting God. The freedom from the exclusion of the congregation of God's people. Through the name that is above every name, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And today, if you are not in Christ and you call upon his name in repentance and faith, he will then call you by his name. And that's why this is so precious. Ultimately, our names, though important and will help us in our efforts, pale in comparison to he whose name by which we are called, Jesus. Lastly, for those of you who are in Christ, let me ask you, how much do you know about the people at this church? Before I read you that list of names in Ezra 2, how much did you know about all those folks? I'd wager not much, neither did I before I studied this week. How could you learn more about this list of names? Intentionality, diligence, asking good questions, not ignoring it as less than worthy of your time. As our church grows, have you resigned yourself to staying in your close group with the names that you'd prefer to know rather than doing the hard work of getting to know the names of the people with which you are in covenant? But I know something about everybody here, Chris. I'm not sure any of us could say that. So you know where they live. And you know that they have a number of children in their family. Do you know all of their children's names? Now, I'm condemning myself at this point. So she's pregnant. What else do you ask her about every week in the lunch line other than her pregnancy? I'm sure she does more than just baby build all week long. <laughs> Beloved, in our church covenant, you promise to serve and provide care for one another as members of one body in Christ. How can you do that if you don't know the people and don't know their needs? You've covenanted with this church to pray for the church as a whole and for its members. How do you do that without knowing the needs of the new faces that have covenanted with us? <laughs> I had a covenant member tell me several weeks ago that every week at Christ the King has been a push for him, what he called a push. What he means is that God has blessed this church with a group of people that are actively pushing him towards Christ in Christian maturity. I know from a number of you that you've been looking for that for years. And that only happens by the power of God. And it only happens when God's people are obedient and press in to one another. Let me encourage you to consider. 
Here's how you can directly apply this. Make your conversations less fluffy and even consider, at times, being more frank. I know of a sister in our church who has tried to make her responses to the other women in the church shorter and more to the point in order to encourage her sisters to be relationally stronger and go more often to the hard places between covenanted friends. I think it's a great idea. What about those of you who are more comfortable being one of the unknown names in this long list? You're on the fringes. You like the church. You may like the music or the preaching or the evangelism, but you prefer to be left alone. Get over yourself. Repent. God brought you here because you were a member of his body too, and we need you. Quit acting like Christian tonsils or a Christian appendix. I don't really know what this is for, so we can just take it out. <laughs> nope, God put it there for a reason. Leave it in. Now let's look at the last few verses here and we'll close. Verses 68 to 70, concluding with 70. Some of the heads of the father's houses, when they came to the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, made free will offerings to the house of God to erect it on its site. Consider again where we're at in the story at this point. This large first wave of returnees assembled and has made the trip back to the promised land after the edict from the king of the entire known world through the hands of God with all the generous gifts. And then what happens? The leaders, the heads of the father's houses, men of character and integrity, give of their own accord beyond what is required for the work of reconstruction. I say beyond because everything necessary for rebuilding the temple had already been provided by Cyrus. These men, and I'm sure many others who followed their example, saw that the Lord, in keeping with His promise to the patriarchs, what He had done to deliver them from captivity and bring his people back to the land and establish them in it again. And these men decided freely of themselves to give additional thanks through gifts to the work of building God's house. Notice as well that each gave according to their ability. In other words, they may have given a gift to God that felt like a real setback for their family, maybe in their financial plans. Let's say they gave 20 derricks of gold instead of 10. But there was no shame in not giving what they didn't have. I wish I could give 50 derricks, but I've only got 20. There's no shame. They gave freely of what they did have. Now, I am going to take a risk here and talk about giving again. Yes, that makes two weeks in a row. I know this gets abused. Once uh, my brother and I went to a, a mission trip up to the Chicago area, um, we went to what I would now call a charismaniac church. Um, <laughs> in the church service, many of you may have experienced something like this. During the offering, the doors get locked. The pastor tells everybody what God told him he was supposed to get today in the offering. And you just keep passing the plate until that number is reached. We've all seen this abused. But I want you to consider how Jesus wants to free you from what he says is the one thing that your heart will crave to serve next to him and above him. He says, you can't. You can't serve both God and money. I come back from exile. I've got all these derricks of gold. I'm ready to build my house. That's not what these men said. They had considered what had been done for them, and they said, I have got to thank God. And they gave freely of their own accord. If you don't give, have you considered the lavish gift of grace in Christ Jesus that has been freely given to you? It is so plain that the gratitude 
of these men is the main reason that they gave. 50 plus years in exile in a foreign land because of their wicked and ungodly behavior. Many of them just used when they were carted away from Jerusalem as the first temple walls were coming down. They could still remember how it looked and they thought that they would never see that plot of ground again. And here they are returned by the king of kings. Calamity became virtue's opportunity. Jesus once told a parable about two men who owed a debt to their master. One a great debt and one a small debt. And you know how it goes. When both men could not pay back their debts, the master canceled the debt of each. His point, Jesus' point, as you remember, was that the greater the debt forgiven, the greater the response of love will be. There is not one person in Christ today for which the incomprehensible, awful wrath of God did not need to be poured out on His Son for six solid hours on a bloody cross as the atonement, the only possible thing that could take away our sins. Do you realize that, church? Do you realize that? The fruit of the realization of that is that graced people become gracious people. You could sum up the moral of Jesus' parable this way. The one to whom much is given will be the one from whom much is given. Even if you're that poor widow with two pennies. It's interesting. Jesus didn't give some negative financial advice to her. Well, you got to provide for yourself. He said, her faith is great. She gave everything she had. If you don't give, is it because your own kingdom is currently taking priority? A word from the prophet Haggai, giving during the course of the writing of Ezra. We'll get to it in chapter 5. This is from Haggai chapter 1. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, This people says, The time has not come, even for the time of the house of Yahweh to be rebuilt. Then the word of Yahweh came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to live in paneled houses? while my house lies in waste? So now, thus says Yahweh of hosts, set your heart to consider your ways. You have sown much, but what? You bring in little. You eat, but there is never enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to be filled. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put them into a bag with holes. You get the idea. People say, I don't have enough money to give to the church. We have so little of our own anyway. God knows how much I have in the bank. If he wanted me to give more, then why doesn't he give me more? Let's be honest. That sinful heart resides in every single one of us. It also sounds a lot like the man in the parable of the talents who talked back to God saying, you're a harsh master, so I just kept laid aside what is yours. Here, you can have it back. I did nothing with it. He was sent into the outer darkness. Our Lord is so plain about the fact that you cannot serve God and money. But what does Jesus say? Beloved, we talk about giving. This is... That thing for Americans that is so hard to talk about. What does Jesus say? He taught us, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now I'm not saying every dollar you give, you get back too. Don't hear me making this some wooden mechanical thing. But God has promised to bless his people when they give. So, considering that, have you considered the joy of not just giving to the church, but also its needy members? 
We aren't building a temple today. We're building the house of God, which is the church of Jesus Christ. Yes, you are commanded to give to the church, but have you considered the significance of giving to individuals in the church? The church, as our covenant says, and its members. John says in his first epistle, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? I can remember times in our marriage where Tammy and I were po. We couldn't even afford the last two letters. We were po. There was a time, I can remember, both of us remember this, where we couldn't afford groceries. And I remember it was the people in the church. One day I showed up to a church that I was serving as a youth uh, intern at. I showed up to the office where the interns were hanging out. I opened the office door. The floor was covered with groceries. Didn't come out of the church account. Individuals in the church bought it at the grocery store and brought it. That food lasted for months. It carried us through a dark time. Let me give you a few tips here. Try and give in secret. Jesus encourages us to do that. We're also encouraged to give bountifully. We hear about the Corinthians. Paul says that the Macedonians gave beyond what they could. And then we're encouraged to give cheerfully, with joy. And by the way, it may feel hard to give with joy, but oftentimes it's in the giving that you find the joy. Begin by being obedient and give and let God fill your heart with joy. You might not feel like you can give anything right now. Many church leaders may have encouraged you not to give anything in times of financial difficulty. It's interesting that Jesus didn't give that advice to that poor widow. Even a little something in faith is a blessing in God's eyes. Now, to conclude, what causes this kind of generosity? You see in verse 70 that God brought these people back to live in, it's, what does it say? Their towns. Their towns. Their homeland. Their places. Their familiarity. Many of them will remember this. Another prophecy fulfilled in the words of Jeremiah and it shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his, that is Nebuchadnezzar's, yoke from off your neck, and I will burst your bonds, and foreigners shall no more make a slave of Israel, but they shall serve the Lord their God and, listen to this, and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. You should see in this verse some more of that biblical theology I spoke about in the previous weeks. Ezra and Nehemiah record a new exodus, the people of God coming out of captivity to the promised land. But what does Jeremiah say? He says, I'm going to give them a king. It'll be David, their king. We know who he's talking about. He's going to put Christ over us. And this he has done, beloved. This he has done. We live now under the reign and authority of King Jesus. We're living in this reality right now. The fulfillment of this prophecy came as Christ came and was victorious over death through the cross, through his resurrection. And now he's king of kings and lord of lords. What is this for? It is so that we can help him build a kingdom for his name and his glory. What can you do this week, beloved, to repent or return, or even begin to put your hands to the building project. If nothing else, you could marvel this week, abiding in Christ, you could marvel this week at the fulfillment of God's promise that He has raised up our King David, our King Jesus, and that each of us today in Christ is called by His name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. As we sang this morning, I can't get over it. Your law is sweet and it satisfies our souls. Please let your people take richly from your word this morning.
they might see where repentance is need, where they need to return, and how they need to rebuild. And that Jesus might have the bride, the price he paid in dying for us, and the kingdom that he longs to see. We know that this is going to happen. It's only a matter of time. We look forward to that day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.